1849, the Mexican-American War had just ended, and America was inching closer toward civil war. Meanwhile, revolution was sweeping through Europe, so it was a, a tumultuous time of strife. And there's a pastor in New England named Edmund Sears, and he believed people were not listening to the Christmas message of peace on earth through a savior. So he wrote a poem expressing the aches of the world, yet also the hope of peace. His poem was later set to music, and it was titled, It Came Upon Midnight Clear. If you take time to actually carefully read and consider the original five verses, you find quite an accurate depiction of man's woes. The only hope mankind has for peace is in the song sung by the angels, namely the coming of the Christ, the Savior. And just by way of introduction, I want to take you through some of these lyrics for us to consider. The song begins, It came upon the midnight clear, that glorious song of old, from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. This pictures the angels come down to earth to bring a message, to announce a message to the earth. And what's their song? Peace on the earth, goodwill to men from heaven's all gracious king. The Messiah has come as the prince of peace to bring everlasting peace on the earth. And so the first verse ends, the world in solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. The angels came announcing a message of good news, that, that all might rejoice. But something was wrong. Listen to the third verse. It says, Yet with the woes of sin and strife, the world has suffered long. Beneath the angel's strain have rolled 2,000 years of wrong. And man at war with man hears not the love song which they bring. Oh, hush the noise, you men of strife, and hear the angels sing. See, man has not listened to the song of the angels, not heeded their message, their tidings of good news. Sin and strife have ruled the day for the past 2,000 years. Man has not tuned in to God to hear that this uh, angel message and multiplied suffering has been the result. The fourth, fourth verse goes on to explain man's pitiful condition. It says, And ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Life is hard and harsh, and we're bent low under its burden toil. We age, we suffer, we die. This is a cursed, broken world. I mean, so far, it sounds like a pretty dark and depressing Christmas carol. But it speaks truth about our world, and because it's true, it, it makes the song of the angels worth hearing and listening to. And it goes on, look now for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. Stop your toil and your striving and tune into the song. Hear what they're saying to find the path to eternal life. And now the final verse, it says, for lo, that the days are hastening on by prophet bards foretold. When with the ever circling years comes round the age of gold. And with the birth of Christ, the days are hastening on toward a golden age of peace on earth and reconciliation between God and man. And that day is not fully here, but it has dawned with the coming of Christ. And what will that day be like when the sun is shining in full? Well, the song ends, when peace shall over all the earth, its ancient splendors fling and the whole world give back the song 
which now the angels sing. The day of the Lord will be a day of peace, extending over all the earth. Man will no longer be at war with man, but more importantly, man will no longer be at war with God. There will be no more sin and strife, and mankind will live in harmony with God and with one another as intended from the beginning. That sounds good. That has been the dream of many. And that day will come because of Christmas, because Christ has come. Now, that being said, I really love the last line of that song. And it says, the whole world will give back the song, which now the angels sing. In that day, mankind will join the chorus. Man will not just receive the song of praise announcing the coming of Christ, but he will return it. He'll, he'll give it back. He'll join and praise God as well, not just the angels. And you realize that's one of the main reasons we were created. God made us and all things for the praise of his name, to declare his glory. That's our created purpose. And if, that, if that's true, when you really think about it, in a sense, the first Christmas was kind of a sad event. Now here's God come down to his creation, the Messiah born among us, the Prince of Peace. I'm going to say that's a pretty big deal. And what should have been the response. There should have been praise and worship, not just by that, that angel choir, but by all humanity. All mankind should have, have received him and returned that song of praise. They should have brought their gifts to worship him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But as you likely know, no one came. No one attended the birth of Jesus. Magi from the East came, yes, but that was actually many months later. They were not there on the night of Christ's birth. When Jesus was born, no one noticed, no one cared. The lone exception was a small group of lowly shepherds in the hills nearby. And indeed, God chose to reveal to them his glory and reveal to them the coming of the king. He sent that angel choir to announce to, to only them that the Savior, Christ the Lord, had come. You can imagine it, it came upon a, a midnight clear. But these shepherds received the angel song and they responded. If you want to follow along, you can turn to Luke chapter 2. But they sought out the newborn king. They found the Lord Jesus, and they worshiped him. And this small band of shepherds returned the song. They were the only ones who returned the song, so to speak. It says later in Luke chapter 2, verse 20, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. But here's an important question. Where was everyone else? Why did no one else on the planet return the song? This is the coming of the Christ, the, the Savior. But just, that's it, just, just the shepherds? At the very least, why did not Israel return the song? They were God's chosen people, right? And then what does it take? What will it take for the whole world to truly give back the song, which now the angels sing? If that is our created purpose... It's not really happening, so what's it going to take? How will that come about? These are some intriguing, intriguing questions, important questions as well. And as you ponder on them, reflect on them, answer them from Scripture, you come away with quite an insight into the, the meaning of Christmas and the meaning of our lives today.
And that's what I want us to do this morning. So we reflect on Christmas. We're going to use this as, as our backdrop. You know, if a single angel comes and announces to these shepherds the birth of Christ the Lord. But when his announcement is complete, this happens. Look at Luke 2 verse 13. Right after it says, And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he's pleased. A multitude of angels just show up, and they're, they're singing this song. They're declaring God's praise. And in that moment, the whole earth should have given back that praise. But the earth lay silent, minus a few shepherds. And so we wonder, why is that? Why did no one receive Jesus when he came? What does that say about us, mankind? What does that say about Jesus and why he came? And then again, what will it take for the whole world to give back that song? I want us to reflect and answer some of these questions this morning. And to do that, just kind of boil it down. And let's consider three key questions so that we might return the angel song, so to speak. Three key questions for us to think about that we might return the angel song. And we'll start broad and narrow down. But the first question, why did God create us? And we're starting pretty broad here, but why did God create us? You have to start there. Have you ever thought about that? You need to. You should. God did create us with a purpose. He defines that purpose. You don't get to define the purpose of your life. He does. And you need to discover it and live up to it. But it's no mystery. God has revealed it plainly in Scripture. And start with all creation in general. God made all things. Why? To reflect his glory. To reflect the glory of God. Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hand. All creation is God's handiwork. His fingerprints are everywhere, testifying of his glory. God made all things ultimately to point to him and to reveal his perfections. Think about it. Everything God made was made to reveal something about him. Why did he make the sun the way it is? Was that we would know something of his absolute power and brilliance. Why did he make the stars so numberless and vast? That we would know just a little bit of his infinite and eternal nature. Everything in creation from greatest to least has something to say about God's magnificence. God made all things to put his glory on display. Like Psalm 8, 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And this creation purpose includes us as well. That we too were made to reflect God's glory. But really in a special way. It, it is only said of humans by God in Genesis 1.26 that we were made in his image. According to his likeness. Unlike the rest of creation, he made us in his image. We were given the capacity to know God. To reflect God. To relate to God on a higher level. And like the rest of creation... God gave us minds to, to understand his transcendence. He gave us hands to serve him and obey him. Eyes to behold his splendor. Lips to sing his praise. 
God himself makes explicit his reason for creating us. Did you know that? In Isaiah 43, God speaks of a future time when he will gather his people to himself. What people? He says, Isaiah 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. God just says it. These people I have created for my glory. Bottom line, why did God create us? For his own glory. We were made to express, reflect, and return the glory of God. Now, before we move on, though, I want to just pause on that just one more minute because we throw that term around a lot, the glory of God. Do you even know what it, what it means? Do you understand what it's saying? How many of us take it for granted? We say things like, well, yeah, to God be the glory, or, you know, we should do all things to the glory of God. But do you even know what, what that means? The Bible speaks about the glory of God in many ways, but at the heart of glory Or rather, the heart of the glory of God is just God himself. Glory is not an attribute of God, like omniscience or or omnipresence. It's just who he is. It's the display of himself or his nature. God on display is his glory. That's why the Bible often speaks of God and his glory interchangeably. When God's glory is present, God is present and he's on display. This also explains why God's glory in Scripture has to do with worth or value. How how worthy is God? What's his value? Well, infinite. God is infinitely worthy, infinitely valuable. And the Hebrew word for glory, kabod, is just weight. It refers to something that's heavy, something weighty, something significant. And God's glory is just his supreme significance. The display of his worth. God's glory is the radiance of his nature and perfections. And now you need to realize we're part of that that radiance. We were made to be part of it. We were created to be a part of the display or the expression of his worth. An analogy I I use often to explain this is just, well, our solar system. That God is, is like the sun. He's at the center. He's supreme. Nothing even comes close in comparison. Everything revolves around him. His glory is unmatched and he alone gives light to the universe. We were made in turn to be more like the moon. We give off no light or glory of our own per se, but we were designed to reflect back uniquely the glory of God. And when we function that way, God is magnified and well-pleased. And what does that look like for us to function as intended and reflect the glory of God? Well, like I said, with our hands, we, we serve him. We obey him. With our lips, we praise him. We worship him. And with our very lives, we, we just live for him. We show that we believe he's worthy of, of our entire life. We glorify God when we recognize his supreme worth, that his gravity is so immense, it just pulls our whole life into orbit around him. And so when we say God made us for his glory, it's what it means, that our life should truly revolve around the worship of God. He's that important. He's that worthy. And what's also so amazing is that God designed us as creatures, as humans, to find our deepest 
significance, our, our deepest meaning, purpose, fulfillment in this place. For humans made in God's image, we're drawn into God's glory and we find our deepest joy when we function, when we are worshiping him. I'm not saying that we become little gods or anything like that, but, but God made us to dwell together with his special presence that we might experience, taste his glory. That's special. You sometimes hear people wondering if heaven will be boring. Like, what are we going to do for all eternity? How long can you sit on a cloud and play a harp? Will there at least be sports? Are you just going to sing praise songs all day? But you're missing the point. What makes heaven special is that we get to fully enter into God's glory, which is his worth on display, full display. We get to forever dwell with God. And that's enough. That's enough. God is enough. Just one minute of that joy would be greater than the sum total of all the happy experiences you've had on earth. We were made to be fulfilled in in reflecting and, and then basking in the glory of God. And so with this in mind, let's narrow things down for a second question, a little more Christmas related. Why did no one praise Jesus when he came? Why did no one praise Jesus when he came? If all this is true, if we were made to reflect and bask in the glory of God, well, why didn't anyone do that when Jesus came? You know, minus a, a few shepherds, no one was glorifying or thanking or praising God when the Messiah came. And if that's our created purpose, shouldn't things be different? This is especially the case when you realize from scriptures who this Jesus is. He's the son of David. Yes, son of God. But even God the Son. This is God the Son himself come down incarnate to dwell among us. And scripture says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The exact representation of his nature. It was read earlier this morning, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. Speaking of Jesus, this divine word. And the word was with God. The word was God. Remember, God's glory is his special presence, his nature on display. And this explains why scripture teaches us that Jesus is God's glory incarnate. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, come down. And so that being the case, all the more so, like why did no one receive him or recognize him or praise him or or give back that song which the angels sing when he came? Well, the answer is because all mankind is malfunctioning. We were made to be like the moon, reflecting and giving back the glory of God. But in mankind's fall into sin and rebellion, all people are born astray from God. Our backs are are turned to the sun. We're living in darkness. In the fall, we're born just no longer even believing that God is supremely worthy or glorious or that our lives should revolve around him. We don't want that. No, instead, some go and wander off. They revolve around, you know, Jupiter or Mars or Saturn. You know, they worship some other God. Or some just wander and do their own thing. They just worship themselves. 
But the point is, the problem we all have after the fall is misplaced worship. That's what it all boils down to. No one is worshiping the one true God as they should. Scripture talks about this. Romans 1, 21 through 23 says this. It says, speaks of all of us. It says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they what? They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. This, that was a bad exchange. But you see, man's problem in sin ultimately boils down to misplaced worship. We've all exchanged the glory of God for just for something else. You know, it's the most valuable piece of art in the world. It's the Mona Lisa. It's never been sold, but insurance estimates put it at around $1 billion. And that dwarfs the most expensive painting ever sold in comparison, which was at $260 million. So just imagine a person walking to the Louvre in Paris. They're viewing the Mona Lisa for an entire afternoon. And they finally say, isn't the frame amazing? They just ignore the picture. They're just staring at the frame the whole time. They're taking pictures of the frame. They're telling their friends about the frame. They're just obsessed with the frame. You think that person is crazy. I mean, I'm sure it has a nice frame. But it's nothing compared to the picture it it points to. And if you're just staring at the frame all day and praising the frame, you're kind of missing the point. You're missing what's of actual value here. And as you can guess, well, God is the picture and all of creation is the frame. And creation is great. It's nice. But compared to the picture, it's nothing. The real value is with God, the creator. And he himself created everything to frame him and to put himself on display. That includes us. But as crazy as this sounds, now, everyone by nature after the fall, that they worship some part of the frame. And that's the great tragedy of idolatry, which marks all sin. All sin is idolatry. It's all misplaced worship. It's all exchanging of the creator for some part of the creation. The Egyptians worship the sun. The ancient Chinese, the dragon, Hindus still worship cows. Modern man is no different. We're still worshiping creation. It's just that now we're we're more focused on ourselves. We worship self. But but what have we found? What's the problem here? Misplaced worship. The problem of man is the problem of sin. All sin boils down to idolatry. Idolatry is misplaced worship. We value the wrong things. And this is, generally speaking, why no one came to worship Jesus. No one valued him. No one returned the song the angels sing because because both then and now man has turned away from God in his heart and is just living for self, doing his own thing on his own way. Now that said, you might still ask, okay, but what about Israel though? Aren't they supposed to be different? I mean, at least Israel should have received Jesus. He came as the king of the Jews. And that's true. The nation of Israel 
was supposed to be different. They were created and then redeemed to be God's special people. They were enslaved in Egypt for many years, but God brought them out to be his set apart nation. God told them at Sinai, Exodus 19 verse 5, he said, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. He would be their God. They would be his people devoted to worshiping his name, functioning. Indeed, ultimately, God redeemed Israel for his own name's sake. God said regarding the Exodus in Ezekiel 20 verse 9, he said, I acted for the sake of my name. That's ultimately why he did it, for his name. And in Exodus 9, 16, he confirms, he brought them out, he says, in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. See, God was calling and choosing Israel that they might now reflect and represent his glory in an even more special way as his redeemed people. They were to be set apart in a world of, of paganism and polytheists, they were to be set apart to the exclusive worship of the one true God. And they were to show off the one true God to all the nations. This is why God commanded them. You know, some of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship them or serve them. Only God is worthy of that worship. And God was was forming Israel to be a people set apart to true worship. Something that had been lost. Everything was misplaced worship. He was bringing them back to a place of true worship. And if they kept this covenant, seeking this God, obeying this God, following this God, worshiping this God alone, he would bless them. They would dwell securely in the promised land. They would prosper. They would be at peace. And all the nations around them would come to know God, the glory of God who dwelt in the midst of Israel. This was God's desire for the nation of Israel. But if you know your Old Testament, you know this this never happened. This never came to be. Israel fell short of their created purpose. God set them apart for his worship. But in the end, in the big picture, they were not believing. They were not obeying. They didn't worship him alone. But they too misplaced their worship. They made the same exchange everyone else made of the glory of God for for something else. Prophet Jeremiah put it this way, reflecting on Israel's history, Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that is a bad exchange. All people who exchange the worship and glory of God for something else Make a bad exchange. And really that when you think about it, the sad state of Israel's unbelief and false worship is, pronoun- is perhaps most pronounced at the birth of Jesus. So many months after the birth of Jesus, Magi from the East come to worship him. These were Gentiles, but they knew about the Messiah. They were true worshipers. They had come to receive him. They saw his star in the East But if you read Matthew too closely, it never says the star led them to Jerusalem. It didn't. They saw the star in the east, and that's that. 
The reason they went to Jerusalem is because they knew the Messiah was to be the king of the Jews. Where do you go if you're trying to find the king of the Jews? You go to Jerusalem. And they fully expected the Jewish people to have already received their king. This is why when they show up in town, they say this, Matthew 2, verse 2. Where is he? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star on the east. We've come to worship him. They 100% expected everyone to know. But sadly, no one knew. At most, at most, Jesus could have been two years old at this point. But no one knew about him. No one sought him out. No one cared. The Magi later found out from Herod and the religious leaders, the Messiah, you know, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. But hey, that's only six miles away. Maybe he's still there. So off the Magi go to, to investigate, to check it out. And thereafter, that star finally reappears and leads them to the exact place where the child was. That's where they find him. But what's really sad is no one went with him or with them rather. Nobody went to like, go check it out. I mean, if you were longing for the Messiah, just, just the thought, just the rumor that the Messiah could have been born a mere six miles away in Bethlehem, where he's supposed to come from, that would have excited any true worshiper. At the very least, they would have gone to just, just to see. But the religious leaders, they couldn't be bothered. And meanwhile, Herod, he just wanted to murder this child. Literally, he, he only perceived this as a threat to his rule, his power, his glory. And so later he had every boy under two killed in the vicinity. That just shows the depths of man's misplaced worship. That's the fruit of the worship of self. When Jesus was born, Jews and Gentiles should have gathered round, joining the song of the angels, praising and, and thanking their God. This was their maker and their Savior, Lord of all the earth. But Israel, though very religious, was still lost and unbelieving. The Gentile nations were never reached. And so, this is why, when Jesus was born, either no one knew, or no one cared. But thankfully, this is not the end of the story. God knew this would happen. And this, in fact, was the reason the Messiah was coming to earth. Something had to be done if if people, if anyone, was going to be made into a true worshiper as intended. And so we can ask one more question now. We can put it this way. Question three. What will it take for the whole world to give back the song the angels sing? Just ask it that way. What, What will it take for the whole world to give back the song which the angels sing? You know, I mentioned Romans 1 earlier. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God sees all this false worship, this misplaced worship that is multiplied on his world. He's not mocked. 
But when he sees this exchange of his glory for that which is worthless, he will not tolerate it for long. And God would be just to deliver nothing but judgment. But because of his love for his greater glory and for his creation, he devised a plan to to do something about it. And God knew this would involve drastic measures. All people are born in sin, cut off from God, spiritually dead, Scripture says. It's not enough to just gather some people into a nation, give them the law, give them a priesthood, give them some commandments, give them a temple, give them some sacrifices. All those externals are not enough. What people ultimately need to be reconciled to God, to be made into true worshipers, they need the forgiveness of all of their sins, and they need new hearts. They need new birth. And all along, God, God promised he would bring that about. And the one who would do it was this Savior, this Messiah. God promised this through King David. Listen to Second Samuel 7, 12 and 13. God said to him, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It wasn't going to be David. It was going to be a seed of David, a son of David, who would come to to do this, to finally build a lasting house for the praise of God's name forever. You also have the, the promise spoken in Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. For God covenanted with Israel, said to them about a future day, I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. There is going to come a day when God would, would cr- truly create a redeemed people. All of them would know him. All of them would be true worshipers for all of them would be forgiven and made new. And that day would, would come about through this Savior. We also read Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there's more. There's multiplied promises in the Old Testament of a Savior who would bring about this day of salvation. He would forgive his people of their sins and, and lead them into new everlasting life. The Savior has come. His name is Jesus. This is what the angels were announcing. What did the angel tell Joseph? Matthew one twenty one. And she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. What did the angel tell Mary? Luke chapter 1, 31 through 33. He said, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
His kingdom will have no end. And then what did that same angel tell the shepherds? Luke 2, 10, 11. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who's Christ the Lord. This coming of Jesus that was announced, it's good news for all the people. And it brings the dawn of the day when sin, Satan, and death would reign over this world no longer, but instead peace, joy, and righteousness. But this day would come at a cost. You know, the fact that no one received Jesus at his birth was foreseen. It was also foreseen that no one would receive him at his death, that he would be rejected by all as he came to bear the sins of his people outside the camp. Isaiah 53 Verse 3 speaks of him as the suffering servant. And it says, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. We did not esteem him. This Jesus lived a, a perfect, sinless, spotless life. But in the end, he would be rejected by the very people he came to save. And in a sense, rejected by God. And the father never departed his love from the son. But scripture does say, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And also Isaiah 53 verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. When you think about that, that, that's not fair. We were the wayward sheep. We were those, you know, wandering moons, denying the glory of the son of God. We were the ones who deserved to be cut off and judged. And so what Jesus did for us in our place is not fair, but it is grace. It's God's saving grace. That the son would come to earth in humble circumstances and and die in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. The light of the world was by darkness slain. But thankfully, the darkness could not hold him. That he burst forth in victory, rising on the third day, conquering sin and death forever. And now he lives forevermore. And he offers that, that same resurrection life to all who follow him. And believe in him. And so I'll ask, have you believed in him? You must. You can. For Christ's offer of new life, it's not just for Israel. It's for all the people, Jews and Gentiles. You know, after Christmas, after the first Christmas, when Jesus was dedicated at the temple, a prophet Simeon came and and said over him, Luke 2.30, For my eyes, he said to God, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. This is what the coming of Jesus signified, God's glory to save all Jew and Gentile. This was God's promise fulfilled. I love this verse, Isaiah 49 Verse 6, this is God speaking of the Messiah long ago. 
And he said, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. God's saying, that's too small. It's too small for this servant to save Israel. But he says, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And God has always been acting that his glory may extend over all the earth and that his praise would be found in all the nations. That this whole world would come to do what it was created to do. And that's return the song, which the angels sing. And again, with Christ, that day has dawned that because of Jesus, because of Christmas, because of Easter, that sinners from all the nations can be saved and reconciled and made into true worshipers. So what does it take? And what will it take for the whole world to to give back the song which the angels sing? Well, now that Christ has come, he did the work. Now it takes that news, that good news going out. It takes the gospel being proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And God says the gospel, that the message of Christ is the power of God for salvation. Only the message of, of Christmas and the cross can save and transform the lost. And when that message goes out, God in his power says, let there be light in the hearts of those who are spiritually dead and, and they come to new life. God is sovereign over salvation. He will do his part, but he has deemed to use the church to get that message out. And that's where we fit in. The church is, after all, merely the gathering in of those who have been saved, who have seen the light by his grace, who've been reformed into true worshipers, called together. And those who come to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ in this church, they're now given a mission by God. We are now to go into all the nations and let that light shine. In a way, we are now to be like the angels. We are to be the ones to go to all the earth and announce the message. That Christ has come. The Savior has been born. He's also died and risen again. That the lost might be found and forgiven and made new. The world missed his birth 2,000 years ago. But God now calls the church to, to carry on that announcement. To reach the ends of the earth with the good news of, of his birth and death and resurrection. And I pray that you are a true worshiper of the Lord Jesus this morning. That you have seen your own sin and rebellion and misplaced worship. But that you've repented, turned, believed in him. Seen him as the son. The one whom all life should revolve around. That's the only path to peace with God, peace with others. It's with reconciliation with, with Christ and following him. And then I pray thereafter that you would also engage in this mission of, of telling others. Go tell it on a mountain and everywhere. And not just at Christmas time that the Prince of Peace has come. His name is Jesus. And it's the only hope anyone has of being made right with God and entering his glory. The day is coming. There will be a day when the sun returns. And there will be a day when all the redeemed from all the nations across all the world will return that song of praise. We get a glimpse of that day in the book of Revelation. 
Let me read as we finish. Just listen along. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. What's that day like? Well, John foresees Revelation 7, verse 9. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That day is coming, but for now we need not wait to enter into that praise, the praise of our God. Praise him every day with your lips, with your lives, offering up your entire selves as a living sacrifice. You be the one to return that song of praise right now. And as you do do so in that place of true worship, God will be well pleased. You will be blessed and the nations will come to know the God of our fathers, the one whose glory dwells in our midst. Let's praise him now. Join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do declare your praise. We are those who have tasted and seen your glory, that the revelation of just your nature on display. We see it in the world, in the sun, moon, and stars, that the creation around us. We see it in scripture. We see it in, in your son, that the Savior who has come to show us even more of the glory of this God who not only creates and judges, but who saves, who redeems, who set his steadfast love on this fallen, broken, wayward world. We thank you and remember in Christmas, the love of God come down that we might be lost no longer, that we might be found and, and redeemed and set back around the sun. That's where we need to be, just basking in just the radiance of his glory. I pray for any here this morning who, who are still wayward. They don't know the sun. They've not found peace and joy with God and with others or meaning to their life. This is the way, the only way that you would speak to their hearts. You would say, let there be light in their hearts right now and, and draw them to yourself, that they would turn to Christ and find this new life that's spoken of, that they then would return the song and be worshipers. And for all of us this morning and, and hereafter, not just on Christmas, Lord, but let us be those who, who return the song of praise and also tell others. May we now mimic those angels who just show up at unexpected times and tell people, We weren't looking that the Savior has come. He has been born. He's died. He's risen. And they can be saved if they follow him. May we tell. May the world come to know. And uh, we long for that day when we all will return your praise to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.